Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Marcus Aurelius, Roman Emperor, philosopher and author of Meditations, was known to have said, Never let the future disturb you. You will meet it, if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which today arm you against the present. I thought this quote was appropriate, as our guest today is a highly experienced, well-respected chair and board director, who in this podcast addresses the many issues confronting today's ASX boards. It is a necessary and timely discussion, with many boards being placed under increased scrutiny, and some of the perspectives that are put forward may surprise you. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. This episode with Graham Bradley is thought-provoking. It is an open discussion with the chairman that has been involved in the appointment of five chief executive officers who feels the times have changed, the autocratic command and control style are for the yesteryear, that humility and a significantly different approach is required by leaders of business today. Graham discusses the current composition of Australian boards, the pros and cons of the current framework, and the need for cognitive diversity, whilst at the same time sharing his personal career highlights and reflections. Graham is a professional company director and is currently chairman of Grain Corp Limited, HSBC Bank Australia, and Energy Australia Holdings. He's Chairman of Infrastructure New South Wales, a Director of Tennis Australia, and Chairs Virgin Australia International Holdings. Previously, he was President of the Business Council of Australia, Deputy President of Takeovers Panel, and he was Managing Director of Perpetual Limited. And in 2009, was made Member of the Order of Australia. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you. A lawyer by background, what made you pursue a career in business? Well, I practiced law for five or six years and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed tangling with the complexity of legal practice, of commercial legal practice. But ultimately, I'd have found myself more interested in the commercial situation of the companies and clients. I was an early practitioner of trade practices uh, law and that, of course, gets you into competition and uh, industry policy. And I just found that much more interesting than pure legal practice. So when a left field opportunity came along, namely an offer from McKinsey to join uh, the firm and as a consultant, not as a lawyer, but as a business consultant, I thought that's a rare opportunity. I'll I'll grab that. I might go back to being a lawyer with a better commercial experience that would be helpful, or I might not. And it turned out uh, 13 years later, I had made a happy choice. And what was the learnings from McKinsey? 
Well, I guess a lot of learnings. Uh, what I learned was that I, was, I had a, an aptitude with numbers. I had a reasonably good sense of how to make money in a business. What I learned, though, was that running a big organisations, we tended to consult to the largest organisations in our region and the country, which was a turn-on for me as a mm. sub-30-year-old lawyer to be doing that. What I learned was that it's not easy to run a big human organisation effectively. And it's no wonder that some companies don't look far into the future. They don't have time to. They're busy running the organisation, which is where a consultant can come in and make a big difference. So, And how lonely are those two these you actually had to go and sit down and talk through the next three to five years with? Yeah, I, th- I think they probably did at times feel the weight of responsibility on their shoulders. I know I did when I was a CEO. But I was very blessed to have a very good chairman who, for me, was a mentor and a, and a counsellor. Uh, so I had someone to bounce ideas off. In fact, when I was uh, perpetual, my chairman was John Lamble, who I've, I'm still a great friend with. And as I said it, when John retired in my speech, I said, John was remarkable. He saved me from some of my very best ideas. <laughs> You did make the move across to becoming chief exec. Can you just sort of talk us through that story? What was the building blocks to get there and how did the opening come about? Well, it wasn't laid out on a platter. I actually went looking for a CEO job after being a management consultant for, well, 11, 12 years. Mm. I'd written the scripts for a lot of CEOs and I just had this view that I could actually sit in that chair and do a good job. I had to find the right kind of company, I had to find the right opportunity and it took me a couple of years of coming second in a number of beauty contests Mm. till eventually... I decided that I was too busy running teams from Papua New Guinea to Western Australia to, you know, right around Australia to really focus on what was next for me. So I actually retired from McKinsey and literally the day I retired, I got a call. It was from uh, law firm Blake Dawson Waldron. They wanted me as a consultant to have a look at their organisation structure and so on, which, which I did. And six months later, they called and said, now we've implemented all your recommendations, Graham, except the one, which is we should employ a CEO and we'd like you to be a candidate. Um, Now, at that stage, I thought to myself, well, it's a CEO job. It's a rather strange and idiosyncratic organisation, a law firm. It's not not a conventional organisation. But at least get this interest of mine out of my system and, and I'll test myself as to whether or not I can actually provide success, succeed in a leadership role. Probably one of the more difficult CEO roles. Well, you have about 120 chairmen <laughs> to start with, all your partners, and you have to be not just a, a guide for the business, but you have to be a financial advisor, a marriage guidance counsellor, and a whole range of other roles that you play as a chief executive of a law firm, which you don't play in a conventional company. When did you make the move into the more conventional side then, Graham? Well, four and a half, nearly five years at Blake's and told the firm that after four years I'd start to listen to the headhunters. And headhunter called one day and said, we're looking for a CEO at Perpetual Trustees. I thought to myself, this is an unlikely opportunity for me. I almost failed trusts and estates during my law degree. It was one of my worst subjects. I thought this may be a bit left field, but anyway, I explored it and made a very good choice, which was to join a company that 110 years old, yes. had gone over the horizon, and it had to reinvent itself. Yeah, what do you mean by going over the horizon, Graham? Well, it was a fading company. Its market capitalization had continued to decline. Its client base was uh, the personal client clients, which was really a small and shrinking business with financial planning starting to take over from the big banks and so on. But when I sought some guidance from various mentors about whether this was a, a good opportunity, one of my mentors said, well, it is a slightly over-the-horizon company, but it has a brand that the AMP couldn't buy with 20 years of advertising, a a brand that connotes trust. 
And if you can't do something with that, I'll be very surprised. So I took the job. And, of course, I caught the wave of managed investments and superannuation funds uh, pouring in. And uh, Perpetual had 30-, 40-year-old funds that where we'd been managing the money for widows and orphans, and we could turn those into public offer funds. And we rode that phenomenon very successfully. You mentioned uh, mentors a couple of times there, Gray. They're obviously very important to you. Well, I wish I'd used mentors more often in my career. I think that's one of the things I learnt over the last several years, that mentors can be very important. For example, when I retired from Perpetual, I still had in mind that I could take on another executive role, looked around for a while, started to get some board uh, positions offered, and I took a couple. And then along came a rather exciting CEO role, and I was quite attracted to it. And I did something that wouldn't have been natural to me in an earlier time. I went and talked to three people that I considered to be mentors and sought their advice as to whether or not I should go back into an executive career or continue with a career as a non-executive director. And I guess when the third of the three said, Graham, you could do that job really well and you'd make a great success of it, but what have you got to learn? What have you got to prove? You know, you're going to be chairman of a company in a couple of years' time. There'll be a lot of uh, more opportunities in the non-executive space. You've proven yourself as a CEO. Do you really want to do that again? And so I took their advice, and I'm glad I did. And do you like being on the other side of the table now, Graham? Yeah, I find it is a good culmination of my career experiences, uh, going right back, actually, as, as a lawyer, certainly as a management consultant with my experience in strategy and organisation and people management, as a CEO with, of course, all the issues you deal with there. And being a director of a company has brought all of those things together. I particularly enjoy being a chairman because I think you can add a lot more value much closer to the CEO. You need to have that full and frank and open conversation that other directors don't have the privilege of having. And as a result, I think you feel you can add more value to the success of the organisation. And as a chair and with the board, how do you assess that that short list of candidates being put forward? What do you look for in a leadership from a chief? Obviously, depend on the company where it's at, but generally, Graham, what, what are you looking for? Well, I've had the task of appointing four or five chief executives over the last five years. So, And I think that what boards are looking for today has changed and what they might have been looking for a decade ago quite significantly. Okay. I don't think we're looking for the star CEO anymore. We're not looking for the person who's going to be autocratic. We're not looking for someone who comes in with very fixed ideas about what's to be done and how to run the business. I think we're looking for someone who's a little more humble in fact, that's an interesting quality to think about mm. in the CEO. I, I really look for people that have a certain humility about what they know and don't know because I know, having been a CEO, that business is very complex and very difficult and there's never a clear and a single path uh, to success. So I'm looking for someone who's curious, who's prepared to listen, who's going to uh, pick up on the culture of the organisation and, and reinforce its good qualities, obviously change if change is needed, but to not do a destruction to the company's culture if it's a good one. So I'm looking for a certain amount of humility in a CEO. And I'm also, of course, looking for personal integrity and values. And that's one of the harder things to test, as you would know, Greg, yeah. in an interview process. Graham, when you've appointed a chief exec and they've settled into the role, you've got to test whether they're hitting the road well and they get the buy-in from the rest of the team. How does a chair really test that without coming in over the top? How do you do it? How do you actually, not just by the reports coming through, everyone's ticked the report, mm. how do you really feel we've got a winner here or how actually this person could blow the joint up? Mm. Well, firstly, appointing a chief executive should be a whole of board decision. 
And that's a really important lesson I've learned. Uh, you don't want it to be the captain's pick. And interesting enough, your fellow directors will often say to you, look, Graham, you're the chairman. It's much more important for you to be comfortable with the candidate. You're going to be working more closely with him or her. So, you know, we'll, we'll listen to your preference. And I've learned not to put my preference forward too early, that make sure these decisions are very, very unanimous around the board table. So all the board should be taking an interest in the success of the CEO and have their antennas up for any feedback you need to give that will help the CEO to be more successful. So I think in terms of measuring the success or, or getting under the skin of the success, as a chairman, you have a very open and frank relationship with the CEO. It has to be a completely mutual, respectful dialogue, and it has to be a, a more frequent one than the rest of the board will have, of course. I've often described that relationship, Greg, as a relationship of public support but private candor. Right. In other words, publicly and in the organisation, you've got the best CEO you could possibly have for this organisation until the day you sack him or her. Right? Uh, and any other public position is is undermining uh, of the authority and the credibility of the CEO. But privately, you've got to be able to give very objective, frank feedback around what is working, what isn't working. And you don't do that just on your own recognizance of where you're canvassing your board in those uh, private meetings you have with your non-executive directors. It's important for chairman always to raise the issue. How's our CEO going? Are we happy with the tone that's being set? Are we happy with the way the organization's progressing? Or are there danger signals? But how do you test for this big thing which is coming up all the time now, Graham? Culture. Very important question and one that will be on the board table for many years to come now. And it's been put there very squarely, hasn't it, by mm. the, the Hain Royal Commission, by ASIC, who's been talking about corporate culture and board's responsibility for it for a number of years now. And I think most importantly, in a way, the APRA report into the culture and governance of the CBA, I think will be a seminal document that boards, not just in the financial sector, but right across uh, industry sectors, and not just in Australia, but internationally, to my knowledge, taking careful note of as to what their role is to make sure that there is not just a tone at the top at the board table, but right through the organisation, there's the right culture and values. So it's a really important question. And I think boards are still at an early stage of figuring out how they can do this most effectively. Is it different things that should be reported to the board or is it different ways for the board to interact with the company at different levels outside the boardroom, for example? Or is it a function of getting independent assessments and, and external inputs to give you hold up a mirror to the organisation? So there's a different techniques that can be used and I don't think there's you know, one textbook on this yet, but we're all working on it. I guess the second part of the role is how do you assess the effectiveness of the board, Graham? Yes, well, the effectiveness of boards starts with who you've got on the board, mm -hmm. of course, and the skills and qualities of the people you've got around the board table. And that, is, of course, is another role that uh, chairmen play to guide that board renewal and succession process. So if, I think the quality of a board's effectiveness will start with the people, their skills, their, and it will, it will then be built on by the chairman's style around the board table to encourage the contribution and diversity of views and to build a culture at the board table uh, that makes it possible for people to contribute fully their experience and their judgment. And then, of course, I think it, effectiveness also means a good relationship with management. Uh, so again, there's a full and frank relationship between the board and the management. Is that more so these days, Graham? 
Oh, I think so. I think it's absolutely essential these days. There was a time, wasn't there, when CEOs often were the only people that reported to the board from the management team. My style over the last 15 years has been to have the entire management team sit through most of the board meetings. All right. Yes, and we do that. We did it at Stockland. We do it at Energy Australia. We do it at HSBC. Why do we do that? Well, because these days boards are looking for teams to be effective, not just you know, the star CEO to be effective, right? And you want to see your CEO interacting at the board table with the other executives who are accountable for large parts of the business. So it's a different style. Graeme, you mentioned the Hain report. Obviously, there's going to be some repercussions and some long-term thinking about it. One part is, as we hear from many chief execs, is its avoidance of taking risk. And also, I guess, looking at it from a point of view from selecting that board Are you going to bring in contrarians or is everybody going to be playing the game because we're the team, we're the supposed team, and therefore the question out there from a lot of people, on this board there's Bill and Mary, on that other board there's Bill and Mary, on that other board over there there's Bill and Mary. Is there, not the club, but you know what I mean, Graham, are we allowing enough opportunity for people to think and challenge in the right way or is is it getting to a point now where as chair we've got to be very, very careful? about the process and actually who we put onto the boards. And as a result of that, are we actually doing the right thing? You know, finding experienced directors with the right qualities is not easy, right? Um, uh, I've recruited a lot of people to boards. You're not, you don't set out to look for a contrarian as such. Okay. You, you set out to look for someone who firstly knows something about the business or you think can learn it pretty quickly You want someone who's business savvy, that's going to bring experience and judgment around the business issues that you have to deal with, including people issues within the organization and those sorts of issues which often hit the board table. You want people who are courageous uh, and will ask questions and challenge management and in, in the constructive way. You want people who are constructive and you do want people who are team players and are not going to, you know, simply oppose every motion for the sake of it or make a nuisance of themselves. You want people who can understand, therefore, the role of an effective director. Now, finding them is not easy. If you've got a board composed of those people, you'll find that they're cussedly independent in their thinking. You do want cognitive diversity on boards, uh, and I've always felt that was more important in many ways than gender diversity or ethnic diversity. What I mean by cognitive diversity is people who bring a different life experience and, therefore, a different perspective to the business issues. I've had, had experience in different walks of life. Very important. But that isn't to say you go out and say, well, we need a poet and we need a musician and we need someone who's you know, from totally different backgrounds. You're always looking for business-savvy people who understand what the job of the company board is. So what would you change in regards to the compositions of boards today? What needs to be really thought through? Well, I think, I think boards have gotten to be a bit smaller and that's actually a good thing because it allows more contribution from from all the directors. On the other hand, committee work has now become uh, even more onerous on directors than uh, the board work, and therefore you do need a certain size of board to share that workload around. And you are looking for a depth of skills in particular areas these days with the digital disruption that's coming forward, the internationalisation of Australian companies. You need people who've got those sorts of experiences But I think our processes now for choosing directors in public companies are actually quite sophisticated and quite sound. Uh, We all have a skills analysis of our board members. 
We have to publish a skills matrix uh, in our annual reports. So it's pretty obvious where the skill gaps are going to occur if you get resignations or people are coming to the end of their term. And so they're the tangible things you go look for. But I think it's the intangible qualities of a director that I look for when I'm interviewing candidates. A lot of people will bring the industry experience, but what you're looking for is someone who you think has got real curiosity, real intelligent questioning ability, who's going to be constructive and is going to you know, give us a different insight through their questioning of management as to, to what the opportunities or risks of the company might be. There's two interesting points there, Graham. There's a bit of a chat, as you know, about industry experience. Mm-hmm. I know you talked about high levels of curiosity, but there's organisations which haven't done well and it's somewhat argue because there was a lack of industry experience. Yeah. There's a bit of a push for that at the moment, so I'm interested in your views. Well, I think, the, I think that push is right, actually. When we look at some of the failings in the Australian banks, I think uh, many investors would say, well, there just weren't enough experienced commercial bankers or retail bankers in there on the board. And why is it important to have the industry experience? Well, boards need to be seen to be and need to be more challenging of management and more demanding in their questioning than they used to be. And you need to do that from a base of knowledge of of what the questions are to ask. In fact, I had a wonderful director back at Stockland who used to say he'd spent his life in property, and he was a wonderful director because he'd say, I know the games they play in this industry because I've played them all myself, right? right. And on that background, he can ask uh, management to look out for things that they might not be alert to as uh, not having had the years of experience that he'd had. So I think that's what you're looking for. You're looking for people who have enough information about the industry. Not everyone on the board needs to have that. You are looking for other qualities. You're looking for people with different backgrounds and skills, but you need to have a good core of people who really do understand the industry. Graham, are we paying enough money to get the best people out there to come to those boards? I think we're going to have to look at paying more for non-executive directors in the future Uh, because I I know many uh, very experienced senior executives who've got years of industry experience who would make wonderful directors who are just not interested in going into public company directorships. They might go into private company directorships or private equity, but they're just not – they don't think the risk-reward equation still works. There's reputational risk and there's not a significant financial risk and there's a lot of work, a lot of which is more tedious than it used to be, all the governance, all the committee work and so on. So quite frankly, I think we'll need to look at whether or not we should pay directors more and maybe have a fewer of them. (laughs) Do you need as many meetings as as we seem to have more meetings than any major jurisdictions compared to the US or the UK? Why is there so many? I know chief execs say, you know, for every month from preparing to present to the board, it takes a lot of time to do so. Is it really that necessary, Graham? I've got two comments on that. One is we do demand more of non-executive directors in Australian companies than they do in Britain or the United States, where I think your comparisons are coming from. Mm. We actually expect the directors to be under the skin of the organisation, to be on top of key issues, to be understanding culture. I think we've gone further over many years now than, than those jurisdictions have. I don't know how big American corporations get away with four board meetings a year. I absolutely don't. And they have a board of 15 and 20 people. So hardly anyone will get to speak. I mean, a, lot more, a lot more CEOs on the board. <laughs> it's a lot more CEOs, active CEOs, which yes. of course means they're just not available to sit on committees and get, you know, to do detailed work, which we expect of Australian directors. Yeah. So I think our governance has, has progressed further. And I think the other countries may have to catch up with us in this regard. So that's my first comment. And the second comment is I, when I was at Perpetual, we experimented with reducing the number of meetings from 11 
down to, I think, seven on one occasion. And what I found as a CEO was it didn't save me any time at all. And the reason I say that is it was often three or four months since a topic came up at the board table and you had to go right back to the beginning and re-educate the directors on that issue and what had happened in the intervening time. Whereas if they're having a monthly catch-up, uh, that's much easier to do. So I just found it was not so good and we reverted to having uh, more meetings just because that keeps the directors current. And in this day and age, there's a real demand from the market, investors, and I think from directors themselves to have a more immediate understanding of how things are travelling in the company. So I don't think we'll see a big movement away from a large number of meetings. How is the uh, boards going to redevelop that trust, Graham? Yes, it's a topic, uh, Greg, as you know, that's getting a lot of airtime. And, you know, I don't think you can address trust in the business community in a global level. You've got to do it company by company, employee by employee. Interesting enough, I find the general commentary around distrust of business at odds with the very high engagement scores I see in the companies that I'm involved in, the high regard they have for their senior executives in coming through the staff surveys, and generally the pride that I see in what companies are doing in their social uh, purpose. And that seems to me desperately at odds with the public commentary. So I think it's got to be solved by every company looking to its own backyard and making sure it continues to do a job that its employees are proud to, to serve. What about remuneration, Graham, on the executive level? So if I look at the four pillar banks and I'm a shareholder and look at the dividends I'm, I'm seeking just for that investment, I'm not getting a lot of growth. So why is everybody in that executive level being paid a bonus and almost the fact that they feel it's a guaranteed bonus? Well, there's two questions there, I think, Greg. One is executive salaries in public companies too high, and I think there has been a movement down in many sectors in Australia over the last five or six years, not just in the last 12 months as a result of Royal Commissions, but um, as I brought in different new chief executives over the last five or six years, they've all come in on lower bases and lower packages overall than their predecessors. So there's been a movement down, Mm. and I think we've readjusted market expectations and, of course, candidates' expectations in that regard. So, But I still think people feel that many senior executive salaries are too high by by community standards. My sense is that would be confined to the top 50 companies, rather. When you go down the list in the ASX, their salaries are not nowhere near the multiple they are of, uh, of ordinary workers' salaries. So that's the first thing. There is still a community fascination and, and concern, I guess, about, about those levels. Now, you raise a second question, and that is about the basis upon which you pay incentive compensation. And, uh, you know, sometimes just standing still in the market and holding your performance and dividends can be a hell of a big job and something that you would want as a board to to, to reward your executives for achieving. That's a bit hard for the external investors to understand sometimes. They don't see the market pressures and so on that are coming on a company and therefore they're not well placed to assess, as the board is, whether management has done an outstanding job or not in just sometimes holding the market position. So it's very hard to correlate dividends with and even financial performance, although, of course, you can't get uh, salaries and bonuses can't be too far away from shareholders' experience um, or you will get uh, investor pushback. Are you concerned about the emergence, we've covered this before, of the professional director? No, I think it's inevitable. In fact, I think it's desirable. Being a company director is not something you do as a part-time thing or as a road to retirement. 
I think to be a good director, you need to have two or three or four boards so you get the cross-fertilization of experience. You're never going to get all the experience you need as a, to be a good director from just being on one or even two boards. And you need to take it seriously as a profession. You need to do the courses. I think the AICD's director course, company director course, is now considered to be almost essential for someone who's serious about a career as a director. And it's a very good course, gets very good feedback from even quite experienced executives and so on who do it. And even people who've been directors for a number of years find it very, very helpful. So I think you need to take the whole thing seriously. It's risky to be a director. Mm. And I don't think you can fully understand those risks unless you've had diversity of experience and you're taking it seriously as a profession. Graham, we didn't touch on a couple of points. One was skin in the game. Mm -hmm. In the sense of? (laughs) Taking a little bit more than first year's fees, investing more than first year's fees as a director. Mm. Does it focus my mind and am I going to get a better result for the company by having people put more effort into and put more investment of their own money into the operation? Well, I've always invested in all the companies that I've been on the board of or chair, and I've introduced the policy of requiring all directors to accumulate over the first three years of their directorship at least shares to the equivalent value of one year of board fees. Not all companies have that policy, Mm. and I know there are some directors who feel it's inappropriate that they should be shareholders, which I find a bit old-fashioned. I think most investors expect directors to have skin in the game, as you put it, I certainly think it improves and focuses the mind and they're going to feel the same pain as shareholders, which after all is the people that's put us there and as a custodians of their um, of their wealth. Great. There's a bit of controversy with regards to the ASEX guidelines, uh, particularly around uh, this, this notion of social license, uh, company social purpose. What does that actually really mean? Companies are asking themselves more and more to, these days to articulate for themselves what their social purpose is. It's an important part of the brand and who they are. The ASX guidelines uh, revision draft that was released uh, six months ago incorporated this notion that companies have a social license to operate, that they not shouldn't just act lawfully and ethically, but in a socially responsible manner. And it sought to define what that meant by stating that company directors should be taking into account a whole range of social purposes. For example, employing disadvantaged people or people from socioeconomic backgrounds that were disadvantaged, things like that, which have gone well beyond the the Mm. legal requirements, uh, as you would appreciate. So many of us in the director community found that those were inappropriate and dangerous things to interpolate in what is a quasi-regulatory set of uh, principles. Companies, listed companies, required to conform to them, but they have to state why they don't. So it's an if-not-why-not approach, which I think is a very sensible approach. It's been in place now since 2003, and I think it's served us very well. We've avoided what the Americans, uh, the path the Americans went on, which was very rigid black letter law around how companies should govern themselves, the structure of boards and so on. And I don't think that's helped them avoid global financial crisis, for example. So we've got a much more flexible system here, and I think it was important to preserve that. But the draft that was circulated went a long way into prescription around things like purpose. So many of us felt that was going in the wrong direction. And I'm pleased to say that the draft that was released a couple of weeks ago has taken most of that out. It still remains important that companies act lawfully, ethically and responsibly, of course, that they protect their brand and reputation, of course. And I think it's advisable for companies to be able to articulate their social purpose these days very clearly. 
it'll incorporate their responsibility to treat customers fairly, for example. And in the post-Hain Commission, that's really what we're asking of our financial institutions who might have lost sight of that um, at various parts of the business. So I think it's important for employees, it's important for community to know that companies have a genuine commitment to a social purpose. That's a little bit different from a, a social license to operate, which mm. implies that it's given by the community and therefore can come with all sorts of requirements and expectations. Graham, from the first day you started in the boardroom to today, have we lost that feel of entrepreneurialism? You hear the words nanny state, you hear the words, because of the, like you say, the Hain Report, boards being very risk averse, covering their own reputation. Are you seeing more of that or is that just a beat up in the press just to sell the newspapers? Well, I certainly hope it's not true. We desperately need uh, entrepreneurs in this country. I think we have them. You can look at some of the startup tech companies, the Atlassians and the like. Yep. You know, we've clearly got very talented entrepreneurs in Australia. I would like to think we can have them in the listed company space, that we can have executives and chief executives who get support from boards to be entrepreneurial in their approach. But in public companies, you've always got to balance risk and reward. Yeah. And your shareholders will expect you, depending on the nature of the company, to be either much more entrepreneurial or slightly less entrepreneurial and much more reliable in terms of the uh, distributions and dividends you can provide. So there's a choice to be made by each company and each board there as to where they put the balance between risk and, and reward. But every board should be looking to build its business, grow its business, meet the challenges, the constant challenges, the pervasive challenges of digital disruption, which is affecting every sector of our economy, yeah. and but to do it in a risk-intelligent way. So where do you see the economy, Graham? Well, the Australian economy has, I think, a lucky and unexpected rebound with the commodity prices going back to record levels over the last couple of years. That's been good for getting a balanced budget, but I do see headwinds. China is definitely slowing. It will, from time to time, you know, bring more liquidity into the Chinese sector and, and re-energise its infrastructure, and that'll all be good for Australia. But what I worry about more is that we haven't, over the last 10 years really, affected any uh, really fundamental reforms in government policy and tax policy, for example, that would make us more competitive. We're getting less competitive, whereas we've had the benefit of launching off reforms of 20 years ago. Mm. And they have set us in really good stead, but they don't go on forever. And so I think, for example, that we've now got uh, corporate tax rates in Scandinavia that are in the 20s, low 20s, in Britain in the teens, in America in the teens, and we're still at 30 plus and we're mm. adding uh, new imposts on, our, on some sectors of the economy like the bank uh, levies. Mm. So we can't continue to have an uncompetitive investment environment here and, and I fear that we, we are at the moment. And is Business raising that to oh, the yes. public? And, oh, yes. I you think, think so? Uh, well, Enough? Uh, well, I know they are to government. I remain, as a past president of the Business Council, pretty close to the advocacy positions and efforts on the BCA and other industry groups. But I think we've had a fractious and somewhat dysfunctional parliamentary situation for now probably a decade with minority parties trolling the Senate, and that's made it very hard for governments to progress uh, important policy. And I'll give you one example of recent times, the energy policy, which concerns yep. me greatly as the chairman of Energy Australia, one of our three largest energy uh, retailers and generators. And we advocated very strongly in support of the government's national energy guarantee, principally because it brings a reliability 
requirement that will underpin the, the reliability of our system, which we've seen breaking down in recent summers. And they got very close to going through, but didn't. Right? So uh, a really important policy that would have given some stability and guidance for investment in that sector has gotten shelved and kicked into the long grass. It may come back, but it's a, an example of the fractious nature of the political process at the moment, which Mid- is quite disadvantageous for the country. Meanwhile, most manufacturing groups in this country are struggling as a result. Our energy costs are way too high, and that's a function not just of uh, near-term events, although it's often blamed on the closure of a power station. It's actually the accumulation of poor, somewhat, sometimes well-intentioned policies, but ultimately misguided policies when they are put together have led us to an industry structure now which is going to, I think, uh, mean that we will have an energy disadvantage for many years to come. Graham, we've got unemployment low, inflation low, interest rates low, Hmm. and yet as business leaders we're still reserved and somewhat hesitant. Are we always glass half empty? What's what's the issue out there? Yeah, I think one of the effects of the Hain Royal Commission will be that it'll be harder to borrow money in the economy. And I think we're already seeing that in the slowdown in the housing prices and in the turnover of houses in Australia. So there are those sorts of things happening, which I think are disadvantageous. Haynes come right at the time when, you know, that market was already cooling and it will just compound that effect for a little while. But I don't agree with your premise that business is becoming, you know, just risk averse and inward looking. I see a lot of major investment projects. We unfortunately slow them here through the regulatory process. It takes a lot longer to get uh, things approved and and through the regulatory process, even if there's a positive government uh, support for them, then, then it should be. And that's an issue of reform that we should be addressing. But putting that aside, I think Australian companies are outward looking. We're seeing more of them looking at opportunities outside Australia. Technology companies, some of the smaller ones, globally are competitive. Of course, obviously, our resources sector is that way. And a lot of the services sector is now, I think, uh, looking more broadly internationally. So I don't think that's uncourageous. (laughs) I think there is a genuine willingness to take informed and intelligent risks, realising that we do have some competitive skills and competitive advantages in in various sectors in Australia that can be globally competitive. If you had the magic wand as a treasurer looking at the Australian economy, what would you change? Well, first thing I'd change the tax rates, not just corporate, but personal. You know, I have a daughter who lives in uh, Singapore. She went up there for two years and stayed six, and I don't think I'm going to get it back for another decade because she started her own business. There were lots of positive incentives to start a business in Singapore, and what's not to like about a 17% personal tax rate? Mm. So I know quite a lot of talented young Australians that have taken, chosen to have their careers in Hong Kong or in Singapore or in the United States for that matter. And I think we need to look at personal tax rates as well as corporate tax rates so that we don't have a disadvantage in that regard in retaining uh, entrepreneurs and talented uh, individuals in Australia. Where do you see the dialogue between US and China? I have a quiet confidence that such an important and mutually dependent relationship that we won't see a major fracturing. I'm hoping I'm right. President Trump's highly unpredictable, Mm. (laughs) and uh, as we all know, but I think the Chinese self-interest and the American self-interest will ultimately prevail and we'll find some stability there. Those tensions should go out of the market uh, sooner or later. It's very important for Australia that they do.
We're so dependent now on China, not just as an export destination, but Chinese students and purchase of agricultural products and so on. So, and not to mention the inflows of capital. So uh, we need to make sure we don't get caught up in uh, continued poor relations between the US and China. What about our infrastructure to support that? Uh, I, know been, I know you've been on a number of panels of late talking about rail, etc. You know, we're supposed to be at the food haven or food garden for Southeast Asia. Are we missing opportunities mm. here? We do have to do a lot of work with our basic transport infrastructure. I chair infrastructure in New South Wales and you can see the number of projects happening in, in this state and, and in Sydney in particular. So we're in big catch-up mode. A lot of our infrastructure is not worse than some first world countries. I think we're ahead of the United States, for example, my recent visits there, but we're way behind the emerging nations. We're way behind the Hong Kongs and Singapores, uh, for example, not to mention China. And so we do have some catch-up to do. We can afford it. We haven't been investing enough to keep pace with population growth. I'm a believer in continued strong immigration. Australia can absorb a lot more people and uh, we will bring in talented people that we need with skills and education. So I'm, I'm a supporter of continuing to grow population, but governments need to get ahead of that population growth with infrastructure rather than playing catch-up all the time. Looking at the export industry, it is still more expensive to bring a container from upstate New, uh, New South Wales to the port of Kimberley than is to get it from there to Shanghai, which is ridiculous. Yeah. So we do need to invest more in rail uh, infrastructure. I'm not talking about glamorous projects like very fast trains from Sydney to Melbourne. I think there's a lot more basic improvement in the rail infrastructure, even duplicating the right, the single track rail line into Port Botany. Can you imagine in, in the 21st century we have a single track rail to get to all of the exports from rural and suburban New South Wales to the port and vice versa on a single track? That's about to be duplicated, but it's taken too many years to do basic things like that. You've been a high <laughs> performer all your career. When do you take the time to actually sit back and think, Graham? I have a lot of time on aeroplanes to think that and think. Is and that where you, is that the place you do it? Yes, yeah, wonderful. There's no phones, there's no internet. I do usually have board papers to read, but that's a good time to uh, to think. But I think it's always important in as an executive, as a consultant, and as a director now that you have a balanced lifestyle. I am busy on board matters now on you know nearly six days a week yeah. uh, on average. It's not as constant and you must always carve out the time for your family, for your sport, you know, for your personal health and well-being. And, you know, so it's swimming the laps in the pools when I think about the business. Good ideas come to, to me when I'm on the tennis court. <laughs> so uh, I think you've got to make time for, for diversity in life. Uh, for those people thinking about making the first move into the boardroom, what advice would you give them? Well, first thing is make sure you are serious about being a company director and you don't think it's a nice thing to do when you're semi-retired. I think it's too risky uh, to approach it that way. Then educate yourself fully on the risks and liabilities that you will bear as a company director. Do something like the AICD's company director course, for example. Make sure you're fully aware of the what you're taking on. And then I'd say don't just jump into the first board that comes along. You might be flattered by the invitation, but make sure you are very confident about the culture of that boardroom because that will be the most important thing for you in developing your career and learning how to be a good director. Make sure you're very comfortable with the chairman's style, quality and integrity of fellow directors, and the integrity, too, of, of your chief executive and the brand of the company. You'll get a feeling for that during the interview process. 
and just because you're invited on the board, uh, don't jump at the first one that comes along. Have you got any wrongs so far? Yep, but mainly because I didn't analyse as closely as I might have or appreciate the style of the chair and you know I've resigned from a couple of boards as a result. Graeme, what would the Graeme Bradley of today say to the young Graeme Bradley who was studying law all those years ago? I would say to him, embrace a business career sooner than you did. I spent six years practicing law. I enjoyed it. But if I had started into a business career earlier, I think I would have probably had a chance to do two or three CEO roles rather than two. And I think I would have enjoyed that. Graeme, did you have any aspirations to be CEO out of Australia and offshore? I would not have rejected it. Uh, I spent two years uh, at McKinsey in San Francisco. I enjoyed working in the United States. My wife's American. And one of the opportunities I did look at after I started my directorial career was an opportunity overseas. But in the end, I I decided that I should stay with the portfolio career. And um, that's proven to be a good choice. On that, Graham, thanks very much for joining us today at No Limitations. Thank you.